0: if you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, bring them out and turn to the Gospel of John. Pastor Patrick is preaching through the Gospel of John during our time now. And as we were talking about what we wanted to do uh, for the men's retreat, the topic of John's use of the term world came up. And in John's Gospel... The world is a big, big, big theme, and there's a lot of stuff going on in the world today that this applies to. Over the last couple of weeks, if you've been here at Christ Bible Church, you've seen the exalted Christ from Revelation chapter 5 on Easter Sunday. Last week, we got to see the throne room of God from Revelation chapter 4 and how John showed us. The sovereignty of God in all things. That God is in total control of everything that's going on. When you look at the world and you look at what's going on in the world, it's a scary place. You hear about terrorists. You hear about ISIS. You hear about agendas in the United States of America to push Christianity out of the public sector. And all of this is happening right now. G.K. Chesterton, great uh, British journalist and author in the late 19th and early 20th century said this. He said this about the world. A strange fanaticism fills our time. The fanatical hatred of morality, especially of Christian morality. When was that written? That was written in 1905. Over 110 years ago, how much more true is this today than it was then when he wrote it? Over 100 years ago, the story goes, the the Times of London sent out a letter across the world, across the globe, to many distinguished authors throughout the world, asking them to reply to the question, what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton simply replied, dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. That was it. He understood what was wrong with the world. I am. What's wrong with my job? What's wrong with my company? I am. What's wrong with my church? I am. By the way, if you ever find a perfect church, don't go there because you'll ruin it. Okay. He understood his own depravity. He understood what was going on inside of his heart. He understood what was wrong with the world. So let me ask you the question. What is wrong with the world? What does John mean when he uses the term world in his gospel, in his letters, in his book of Revelation? This is an incredible study because there's not much written about it. You can look at the commentaries. You can look at encyclopedias and dictionaries and all kinds of other places. But nobody's really done in-depth study of what John means when he uses this term in his gospel. So in developing this message, it was, uh, it was fun because it's a lot of digging and a lot of reading and a lot of rereading. And a lot of really trying to understand how John does things. Um, he uses this Greek term, this Greek word, cosmos. We get our English word, cosmos, from it. Okay? Right? The cosmos from Carl Sagan, right? The billions and billions of stars in the cosmos. That's where we get that English word. And in its most basic sense, that's what it means it means the created universe or the creation realm. This Greek word is used 185 times in the New Testament. So it's it's a pretty significant word. John uses it 78 times in his gospel alone. So John uses it almost half just in his gospel. All told, Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined use this term only 15 times. Not as big of a deal for them. He also uses this term 24 times in his letters and then three times in the book of Revelation. Altogether, he uses it 105 times in his writings. So more than half of the New Testament usages of this term occur in John's writings alone. So John has something to say to us about the world. It is really quite important that we understand what John's means when he's talking about the world because of all of these occurrences and as pastor patrick continues to preach through this gospel you can begin to think maybe in the back of your head i wonder how john's using the world here and we're going to look at that today as john writes he has a worldview in mind and i love john and i love the way he writes because he's very black and white and i tend to be a very black and white type of person Right and wrong, good and evil, light and dark, sons of righteousness versus sons of wickedness, sons of God versus sons of the devil, life versus death. He's very dualistic. There's only two options. He's very much aware that the world is openly hostile to Jesus. As he's writing this gospel, he has already experienced the death Of all of the other apostles He's seen them die He saw James his brother Killed by Herod He himself was boiled in oil by Domitian And he continued to sing hymns and preach the gospel in the midst of being boiled in oil. He survived it He didn't kill him And Domitian had to say what do I have to do to get him to stop talking? So what did he do? He sent him to the island of Patmos. Ultimately, he was allowed to come back off of that island of Patmos, back to Ephesus, and he ended up dying of natural causes. For John, Leon Morris says, The shattering thing was that the men who inhabit this beautiful and ordered universe acted in an ugly and unreasonable way when they came face-to-face with Christ. That experience that Jesus has had on this earth becomes the paradigm for discipleship. What did Jesus tell us in John 15? If the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. If the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. Leon Morris, in his uh, great commentary on this book, says this about this term world. He says, this term has many shades of meaning. This diversity must be kept in mind in studying the gospel because the boundaries between the classifications are not hard and fast. John moves freely from one to another or even uses the term in ways which evoke more than one of its possible meanings. So this is going to be kind of a fun study this morning. As, we, as I preach through this, hang on, because we're going to be in the gospel of John a ton, just flipping back and forth in John's gospel. I want to look at today, I want to look at five ways, five ways which John uses the term world so that we can understand his teaching. John uses this term five different ways in his gospel and other writings. Let me give you those five ways so you can write them down and then we'll go through each one and we'll pick out some verses in John's gospel and we'll look at them and we'll look and see what John has to say about the world. So the five ways that John uses this term are he uses it to mean the physical world, the human world, the moral world, the temporal world. And lastly, the coming world. Let me give you guys time to write those down. The physical world, the human world, the moral world, the temporal world, and the coming world. So let's look at this first world, the physical world. Number one, the physical world. At its largest extent, this includes the whole of created universe. Okay? Everything that we see, the stars, the moon, the sun, the planets... Our own earth is what he is talking about. He's talking about creation at its largest extent. Look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We may as well start at the beginning, right? Chapter 1, verse 9. Look at what John says here. He says, There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. So, John is beginning a new section here in this verse, in this Gospel. And he's talking about the incarnation of Christ, about God becoming a human to inhabit this earth. The second person of the triune Godhead, think about this. The second person of the triune Godhead condescends and agrees to his father's plan to come into this world as a human being, his creation, mind you the creator enters his creation as a created being a human baby being fully god and fully man does that give anybody else in here a headache when we think about that we we can't even begin to understand everything that's involved in the incarnation we either want to deify the humanity of christ which then l- you know, Elevates his humanity or we want to humanize his deity which then lessens his deity and we can't do either We have to hold them fast and tight realizing that jesus is the god man Condescending to enter his creation as the creator in a human body The previous sermon series that Pastor Patrick went through in Philippians covered this a little bit in Philippians 2. Remember this passage when he talks about the incarnation in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11? And he says, have this attitude, this attitude of humility. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the incarnate state, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, voluntarily set aside the independent use of his non-communical attributes for a time. Okay, let me say that again, just so you kind of hear what I'm saying. Jesus Christ, the second person of of the Trinity, Voluntarily set aside for a time while he was on earth The independent use Of his non-communicable attributes But in that he never stopped being god While he was in the physical world while he lived on this planet the second person of the godhead never ceased to exist And there are people out there that are going to try and tell you that he did When he became a man, he was a man. He was a great man but he wasn't God during his time on earth. Or there are other people that he'll say he was God up to the point where he went to the cross. And then he stopped being God. He was a human on the cross. But no. He was the God-man. According to John, and according to this verse, Jesus somehow imparts a degree of understanding concerning spiritual matters. Not necessarily resulting in salvation to all those inhabitants of the earth whose ears and minds are reached by the message of the gospel. Look at this verse again. There was the true light. What does that imply? That there was a false light. There was a true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. What does that imply? It implies that men had darkness. They they were not enlightened. They were unable to understand the truth of who God is and who the Messiah is. Unfortunately, the majority of people living in God's creation do not respond favorably to this truth. Many who have the light prefer darkness. Some are saved, and they are saved entirely through the sovereign act of a gracious and loving God. That's the world that we enter into in John's gospel here in verse 9. It is the created world. The second type of uh, usage here, in, we see it in verse 10, is the human world. Okay? The, the human world. This includes the people of the world and where they live. These, this is living among other people, right? We all live in a community. We live among other people. This is the human world that we interact with. We would call it maybe society, if you will. So the idea of society... Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Wait a minute. What usage is that second world? The first usage. But, verse 10 again, the world did not know him. So here John is flipping back and forth between two different meanings of that same word. And that's where we got to really understand how John uses this term in his gospel. He has a very fluid understanding of this term world. He likes to change it up and move it around, and we just have to flow with John. Even when using the term world in this way, meaning the human world, society, if you will, here's where it gets really fun. There's at least five different aspects of society or how John uses this term to mean living in the human world. And he describes it for us. Okay? He describes it for us. The first way is the world that did not know the word. Okay? These are the human world, the people of the human world, that did not know the word. You see that there in verse 10. The world did not know him. These are unbelievers. How many of you live among and know... Unbelievers. You work next to them. You live next to them. You see them in the shopping mall, in the grocery store, in line at Costco. This is the world that we live in. This is the world that John lived in. Man was created to have a very special relationship with his creator. But we all know the story. Ultimately, he was designed to be the image bearer, but ultimately became the image destroyer. In the garden, when Adam and Eve, when God created Adam, Adam knew that he needed some kind of fellowship. The animals weren't enough, so God created Eve. And when he created Adam and Eve, he created this sanctity and this, this union that we call marriage. One man, one woman, covenant before God for all time. And that marriage was very special to Adam and Eve. But they had an even more special relationship, and that was the relationship that they had with their creator, because they knew God. They had a very special relationship with him. But it got ruined. And in ruining that relationship, they destroyed the image of God within them. Somehow, we all still have the image of God in us. Even non believers have the image of God. We are all image bearers. And that's why life, all human life, is special is sacred needs to be preserved from the womb to the tomb needs to be protected we need to see how god sees us and sees that vertical relationship this is the human world that paul is talking about paul ends says this about uh, the image of god he says god created man in his own image and likeness but this does not refer to bodily form since god is spirit But a spiritual, natural, and moral likeness. In his spiritual likeness, man, as a regenerated being, may have fellowship with God. And that's key. Because unfortunately, in their unregenerate state, man is not able to have fellowship with God. And that's what man needs. In his natural likeness, man has intellect, emotions, and will to know and communion with God. And in his moral likeness, man may know and obey the precepts of God. Paul has a great passage in Romans 1 when he talks about what has happened to mankind when they choose not to bear the image of God, when they choose to destroy that image and put it aside. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who should be glorified forever. Ultimately, the people of the human world became God's image destroyer. And as that image destroyer The world did not know him. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Paul uses this term the same way. According to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest Thankfully We have a savior that entered the world and interceded on our behalf and fulfilled the law for us in the world So that we don't have to Because we can't And you know how paul continues that passage, but god being gracious ultimately saves us the purpose of man's creation was the divine intention that he should glorify god and enjoy him forever he should live his life in the will of god and by this accomplish god's purpose for man in the world but unfortunately when you look at society around you what do you see at every turn every place they want to destroy christianity They want to destroy it from without. They want to even destroy it from within. They've destroyed that relationship. And ultimately, it was Adam's sin of disobedience to the revealed will and word of God that caused man to lose his innocence. And the consequence of Adam's sin has been passed down to all of us. We are all now under that sin. We have a sin nature. Why are we sinners? We're sinners. I mean, sorry, why, why do we sin? We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. It's the flesh. We have this battle going on. And the consequence of Adam's sin has been imputed or transmitted to all men of all ages with Jesus Christ being the only exception. So, In this human world that we live in, that first aspect are people that don't know. Don't know the word world or don't know the, uh, the Lamb. I'm sorry, don't know God. The second aspect are the people of the world who do not know the Lamb or don't know Jesus Christ. So the first aspect, they don't know God, the Father. The second aspect, they don't know the Lamb. They don't know Jesus Christ. Look at verse 29 of chapter 1. John is going through the first so you know first week of ministry of Jesus's life and he goes on and sees all of these things that are happening and in verse 29 he says the next day he saw John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that is a phrase that is pregnant with meaning and we're not going to have time this morning to unpack all that is encompassed in That phrase, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we are going to try to do it a little bit. Here the term world embraces all people without distinction of race, religion, or culture. All people without distinction of race, religion, or culture. Now here's this phrase, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does John mean by that? What is he he talking about? Christ is able to take away the sin from people of every tribe. Remember, the Jews were a tribal people. They were the tribe. There were other tribes and and nomadic people groups still around, even in the first century. Christ is able to take away the sin from people of every tribe, not just from one particular tribe of people, the Jews. However, that particular tribe, the Jews, did not recognize him. I love what John Calvin says in his commentary. Listen, listen to what John Calvin says. John uses the word sin in the singular number for any kind of iniquity, as if he had said that every kind of unrighteousness which alienates men from God is taken away by Christ. And when he says the sin of the world, he extends this favor indiscriminately to the whole human race that the Jews might not think that he had been sent to them alone. But hence we infer that the the whole world is involved in the same condemnation, and that as all men without exception are guilty of unrighteousness before God, they need to be reconciled to him. John the Baptist therefore, by speaking generally of the sin of the world, intended to impress upon us the conviction of our own misery and to exhort us to seek the remedy. Now our duty is to embrace the benefit which is offered to all, that each of us may be convinced that there is nothing to hinder him from obtaining reconciliation in Christ, provided that he comes to him by the guidance of faith. That doesn't sound very Calvinistic, does it? All of a sudden, John Calvin is the one that's saying the free offer of grace is extended to all people All men of the world. The offer is extended to everyone, everywhere. And now it is your responsibility to respond to that offer. Don't we hear oftentimes the criticism of Calvinism? That, well, if God is sovereign in salvation, then why evangelize? If God is sovereign in salvation, why do missions work? If God is sovereign in prayer, why pray? You Calvinists don't know anything. And yet here's John Calvin, extending the favor indiscriminately to the whole of human race. He wants the gospel to go out. And now it's our duty to embrace the benefit. We have a responsibility to respond to that gospel call. This passage, John one twenty nine, does not teach universal atonement, that God saves all everywhere. It doesn't teach that. The offer of the gospel is to all without distinction but not all without exception will be saved. Let me say that again. The offer of the gospel is to all without distinction, but not all without exception will be saved. John is glancing at the comprehensiveness of the atonement in its capability. Is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross capable of saving Every sinner for all time, from all eternity past to future. Yes, it is. But is is it applied that way in particular cases? In particular cases, yes. But extensively, exclusively, no. Jesus atoned for and redeems a particular people. And we know who those people are. They are the sheep that hear his voice. My sheep know my voice and they follow me. The people of the world do not know God the Father. The people of the world do not know the Lamb. And then the third aspect that we're going to see, the people of the world are loved by God. These are loved by God. These people are loved by God. When When you hear that phrase, that they're loved by God, why would God love them? Why would he love them? Because they're his image bearers. Even in the destructiveness of their lives, even in their rebellion, they still bear the image of God. And he uses the term world this way in the most famous verse in the Bible. You guys know this verse. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It is the gospel call to every person. It is because he loves his creation that he sent his son into the world to save it rather than condemn it. We always want to stop at the end of verse 16, but we need to keep going. We need to keep reading a little bit further. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We are the objects of God's infinite love. There can be nothing better than that. But do we live like it? Or do we just go through our day, humdrum, ho-hum, without the joy of the Lord? Knowing that we are loved by God. John uses this term a lot also. He uses the term beloved. Let us love one another, for love is of God, right? 1 John 4. We are loved of God. A fourth aspect in this human realm that John uses this term. He says, the people of the world must believe. So there is a necessity of belief in the Savior of the world. He uses this term for necessity of belief. The people of the world must believe in the Savior of the world to have eternal life. Go to John 4, verse 42. And we'll start actually in verse 41. This is after Jesus talks to the woman at the well in Samaria. And he says, many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one indeed is the savior of the world. This one is the savior of the world. Jesus saves all kinds of people from all kinds of nations, from all kinds of sins all over the world. Not just the Jews of Jesus' day. The people of the world must believe in the Savior of the world to have eternal life. And then one more aspect under this heading of human world is reception. The people of the world must receive the bread of life in order to live. The people of the world must receive the bread of life in order to live. Keep going over in John, John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. And in John chapter 6, verse 33, he says this. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven And gives life to the world. So this is that human world again. And it is the bread of life that gives life to the world. Who is the bread of life? None other than Jesus. Verse 51, same thing. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give. For the life of the world is my flesh. Did you realize that back in the first century, in first century Rome, Christians were accused of cannibalism because of this verse? But what does this mean? It means that we need to trust in Christ alone and the completed work of Christ on the cross for our salvation. Because if we do not, we will not live. We will not live forever. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the only way into god's eternal kingdom jesus is the real bread that gives life god is creator created this world so that we would have a relationship with him so that we would be able to glorify him but unfortunately adam destroyed that opportunity for true fellowship because of adam's sin we are sinners in need of a savior We must be saved we can't save ourselves. We can't do enough to obey the law. We can't fulfill the law We can't even begin to understand our own hearts and our own sin We live in a world full of depravity around us. We live in a world full of sin We're inundated and and hit every single day by sin messages Thankfully Paul tells us, thanks be to God for Christ. God sent his son into the world so that through his death we might live. What an incredible, incredible gift. And we have the opportunity to respond to that gift, to that gift of God in Christ, to trust in Christ alone. So if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, You have never responded to the gospel call in your life. You've never accepted and trusted in Christ alone as Lord and Savior. Do it today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that God is calling you to trust in his son for your salvation. He sent him into the world to save sinners. And that's what we are. Not only does John use this term world to mean the physical world and the human realm or society, but additionally, he uses this term also to mean the moral world. The third usage of John's use of world is the moral world. This includes people who are indifferent or even hostile to God and to his message to the gospel. These people are most of the time corrupt and sometimes outright evil in the sight of God. John calls them at times God-haters. God-haters. We see this four, four times in the gospel. Many more, but I want to look at four. John 7, 7. John sees and shows us The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. So this moral world, this people who have an attitude towards God, hate Jesus. Why? Because he brought the truth. And he brought the truth to bear on their lives, and he called them out on their sin. How many of you in here love being told that what you have just done was sin? How many of you here love being confronted for your sin? Right? None of us. Even the most loving, gentle, respectful person can come to you and say, Brother, sister, you know, I noticed that when you interacted with so-and-so and, at such and such a time, you did this and that. That was really sinful. What's the first thing that we want to do? Get defensive, right? Just like Keith did. We want to smack them, right? We get defensive about that. Guess what? The moral world got defensive at Jesus because he was the standard of morality. And the world couldn't handle that. I want to be the standard of my own morality, not Jesus. And yet, that's exactly who Jesus is. He is the standard for all that we need to do. Another way that this is used. So we see those who hate Jesus. We also see those who hate Jesus' followers. John 15, verses 18 and 19. Now we're in the upper room. We're in the last... Hours of jesus 's life here on earth he 's speaking to his disciples he 's pouring his heart out to his disciples, helping them preparing them for what is about to come on the cross. A little over one thousand nine hundred and eighty two years ago Jesus spoke these words to his followers and he said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world' The world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Do we see people in the church who call themselves biblical Christians, evangelical Christians, who ultimately hate Jesus and what he has said? I can think of at least one. His name's Rob Bell. He goes on to Oprah Winfrey's show and basically says any people group that relies on a book over 2,000 years old is going to become irrelevant. Because the book is irrelevant. Beloved. This is the word of God. When you hear the Bible speaking, you hear the words spoken from the Bible, you are hearing God speak. God speaks through his word to us today, every day. Those who hate his word will call it irrelevant. It is not. We see those who hate Jesus. We see those who hate Jesus' followers. Thirdly, those who cannot receive the things of God. Go back one chapter in John 14, verse 17. He says, and we'll start back in verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, another helper of the same kind as me. Jesus was God in human flesh, so this helper is also then going to be God in a spiritual form. Another helper, and we know that this is the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive. These people in the moral world cannot receive this spirit of truth because they don't have belief and trust in Christ alone for salvation. They have not committed their lives to Christ and submitted to him as Lord and Savior. Look at what he says in verse 17, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Those who hate Jesus, those who hate Jesus' followers, those who cannot receive the things of God. And then one more, back in John seventeen, in this high priestly prayer, we see this moral world in those who create a hostile environment for God's people. Anybody here ever been in a hostile environment? the things of the Lord? Comfortable? Uncomfortable? I remember being in a biology class in college where we read a book called The Processes of Organic Evolution. And in the introduction to the book, within the first couple of paragraphs of the book, it talks about the theory of evolution. The next day in class, after reading this, the professor talked about the fact of evolution, the truth of evolution, the reality of evolution, all of the things of evolution. So I raised my hand and I said, but professor, the book you have us read calls it a theory. Oh, we just need to update the book. When did that change? Oh, well, no, it's just, it's just held as scientific facts now. We don't need to, we just need to change the book. But when did that change and who changed it? And how was it changed? And is it reproducible in a lab? And were you there? Did you observe it? Excuse me? A little bit of a hostile environment. Needless to say, I didn't do all that great in that class. But there is an environment that is becoming increasingly more and more and more hostile to Christ. Have you been following what's going on in the news with Christian groups on campuses at Cal State schools? University Pre- uh, F- Fellowship has lost the ability to meet on campus. I believe it's at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Um, there are many other Christian groups at many other schools that are essentially being told, you can't meet here if you believe this book. If you require your leaders to be professing Christians and trust and believe in this book, then you can't meet on campus. You can't have, we can't have public discourse with this book on display. That's bigoted. That's narrow-minded. That's, quote-unquote, wrong. Yet, that's the world that we live in. Look at John 17, verses 14 to 16. Jesus prays this prayer right before he goes to the cross. I have given them your word, talking about his disciples, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. And now he extends the prayer to his disciples and to those who come after his disciples. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. That's the moral world that we live in. It is a world that is hostile to the things of God. So we've seen John use this term world three different ways so far. Physical world, human world, moral world. We've got two to go. You think we're going to make it? <clears throat> hope so. We're going to look at number four, the temporal world, the temporal world. This is the temporary nature of existence here in this world. This world is a temporary world. This world is not going to exist forever. The universe is not going to exist forever. We also know that this, thankfully, this temporary world, and it is only, that it is only temporary because it's ruled by Satan. This temporary world is ruled by Satan. Look at John 12. John 12, 31. Now, judgment is upon this world. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Eventually, we see that from other areas of Scripture, that the ruler of this world who is cast out is ultimately Satan. This world is ruled by Satan. That's one of the reasons why this is only a temporary world. Now we're going to leave John's gospel and run over to 1 John. Go ahead and turn over to 1 John, because we're going to be in there a lot the rest of this morning. This world is also passing away. We see that in 1 John 2. Look at 1 John two seventeen. He says it very clearly. The world is passing away. What does that mean? It means... The world is passing away. This is a temporary world. Isn't it beautiful when the word of God is clear, and yet it is always clear? It says what it means. It means what it says. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And what is the will of God? To love God and love God's people. Love God, love others. Jesus says, love one another. This world is ruled by Satan. This world is passing away. And thirdly, this world must be lived in actively, consistent with Jesus' teachings. We are not going to get off of this planet anytime soon, people. Beloved, we have to deal with this world. We live on this created planet in society among a people who hate Christ and hate Christians. I want to give you three things not to do and three things to do, okay? Three things not to do. Number one, do not love the world. Do not love it. Do not love this world. Do not love the things of this world. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In 2 Timothy, we see what happens to a man who loves the world. Demas was one of Paul's companions and was a valuable member of Paul's inner circle when he was imprisoned. But in 2 Timothy 4, we read that Demas, having loved this world, has left. He left. He left Paul high and dry at Paul's time of greatest need. Because he loved this present world. Beloved, do not love this world. Number two, do not become conformed to its ways. Do not become conformed to its ways. Don't be comfortable. Don't get comfortable. First John 2:16: "For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world." Do not become conformed to its ways. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, this is your spiritual service of work, worship. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, knowing what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Number three, do not fall in love with its godless wisdom. Do not fall in love with its godless wisdom. 1 John 2.17, the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The only wisdom that you need is the wisdom that comes from God. Do not fall in love with godless wisdom. Three things to do. Number one, live a godly life. Live a godly life while in this world. 1 John 2, verses 28 and 29. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Do live a godly life. Number two, avoid, do avoid the snares of the present evil age. Avoid the snares of the present evil age. 1 John 2, verses 18 to 25. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. And isn't that true? There are so many people in our society who are totally against Christ. Christ. And from this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For as if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they were not all of us. Those are the ones that succumb to the snares of this world. Do not, I'm sorry, do avoid the snares of this present evil age. And then number, t- number three. Do look forward to the new world. Do look forward. Anticipate the coming of Christ. 1 John 3, 1 and 2. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Look forward to this new world. We've seen how John uses this term to mean the physical world, the human world, the moral world, the temporal world, or the temporal understanding of the world. Lastly, fifthly, the last way he uses it, is in the coming world. And we've read a few of those verses already. Another world exists, but not for us yet. Another world exists, but not for us yet. And this is the world that is coming. And we look forward to this world. Going back to John's Gospel. At the end of John's Gospel in John 18... Verse 36, he says this, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And that is a trust we have in Christ. His kingdom is still future. And we have the opportunity to be a part of that kingdom in that millennial state. That future coming kingdom. Jesus's chosen ones are not of this world. We see that in John seventeen sixteen. Jesus Himself is not of this world. We see that also in John seventeen sixteen. And then we know that Jesus's world is brand new, and we see that in Revelation twenty one one to five. Leon Morris, again, in his great commentary, says that John does not leave us with a picture of unremitting hostility between God and the world. It is true that the world is not interested in the things of God, but it is not true that God reciprocates. On the contrary, God loves the world. Christ speaks to the world the things that he has heard from God. The whole work of salvation which God accomplishes in Christ is directed to the world. Thus, he takes away the sin of the world. He is the Savior of the world. He gives life to the world. This is at cost, for he gives his flesh for the life of the world. Christ came specifically to save the world, not to judge it. His success is shown by the references to overthrow Satan, the prince of this world. The victory remains with Christ. But this does not alter the fact that the world basically opposed him. Brothers and sisters, the world opposes those who follow Christ. Don't be surprised when, as you follow Christ in the world, the world opposes you also. So what do we do with this? How do we respond? What's wrong with the world? In a word, sin. What does the world need? In a world, in a, in a word, Jesus. Jesus. And what are we called to do? John tells us in 1 John 5. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. He says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what we need to do that's how we overcome the world we cannot be both friends of the world full of evil and friends of god full of righteousness let me read first john 2 15 and 17 again it's worth reading again it's worth hearing again do not love the world nor the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The world needs to hear the gospel. The world needs gospel-centered Christians. The world needs to put their trust in Christ alone for salvation. And the world needs Christians who reveal Christ. The world needs Christians who look forward to the world to come. Are you that type of person? Are you that Christian, that type of Christian in the world? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time in your word and for this time that we can spend studying how John viewed the world what an amazing amazing word and how many times he uses it to glorify you and and to expose sin to expose unrighteousness to expose and and even to prepare us for what is to come Knowing that ultimately, eventually, we were going to be here at some point in time in the world that hates you. Lord, we do love you. We love your son. We love his word. And we are so excited to see him come back. He was the lamb who was slain. He was the lion-like lamb in Revelation 5. He was the lamb-like lion. The one who was slain. The one who is counted worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. He is holy, holy, holy. We thank you so much for giving us your truth in your your holy book, the Bible, that we can study and that we can learn and we can live out. Thank you for this time this morning. We pray these things in your Son's precious name. Amen. Would you stand?